You are listening to a podcast from The National. The outlook for Abu Dhabi's economic growth is robust, according to the latest analyses. The big question, though, is when will this feed into sentiment on the ground? The answer is pretty soon. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from The National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. We will hear from Zahabia Gupta from S&P Global Ratings a little bit later on about the economic growth picture for Abu Dhabi. But right now, here is the other news you need to know from the national.ae. The five top consumer complaints raised by banking customers in the Emirates relate to debt, delays, aggressive credit card selling, as well as bank account and remittance issues. That's according to the central bank's annual report for 2018. The UAE has ramped up its efforts to curb irresponsible lending and banking practices in recent years, rolling out a number of new regulations to strengthen consumer confidence in the sector. Airlines will start inspecting their Boeing 737 family aircraft after the US aviation regulator highlighted wing defects in some jets. This is adding to the plane maker's woes amid heightened global scrutiny over the 737 MAX's safety. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration said up to 148 wing parts of 312 jets may be defective, making them prone to cracks or premature failure, and they need to be replaced within 10 days. Fly Dubai, the UAE's sole operator of 737s, said it will conduct inspections of some of its 14 grounded MAX jets, while the previous model of the aircraft is unaffected. After Saudi Energy Minister Khalid El Falah said OPEC Plus would do whatever it takes to stabilize oil markets, prices extended their declines this week, with US-China trade tensions increasing. Oil prices, which had reversed a tilt towards a bearish market by rising tepidly towards the second half of May, have now declined a further 10% as concerns weigh over oil demand growth with the US and China facing off. Crude is down 20% since its peak in late April this year. With me now, I'm happy to say, is Kelsey Warner, Assistant Business Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hello, Mustafa. So, this week. Apple. Yeah, big story, huh? Yeah, so, uh, probably the biggest news for Apple this week is uh, kind of their new push into digital content, improving upon their digital content offerings. And... uh, Rather than an 18th birthday party, shall we say, for Apple Music or iTunes, more of a funeral. Uh, they're sending it, you know, setting it out to sea, I guess, because they're replacing it with three new apps for podcasts, video and TV shows, and music, all three separated out. And the best bits of iTunes will be in all of them, I guess. Yeah. So um, iTunes, you know, they're really towards the end weren't any best bits of iTunes. They were kind of iTunes would sort of pop up whenever you plugged in your iPhone to do a data backup or to sync it with your other devices. Um, 50 million people were subscribing to Apple Music, uh, but to Spotify's 75 million, uh, Apple really needed to rethink what it was doing content-wise. So, uh, I mean, iTunes... Some people may think it was always around, um, <laughs> but it was a very new thing um, when it when it when it came out. And actually, you know, famously disrupted further. They weren't the initial disruptors, but with the iPod, sure, uh, it 
it came during a time when pirating was actually a real huge issue. And Steve Jobs introduced this idea of paying for music on an interface that was actually kind of nice to use and actually worked with your iPod. Not your iPad. It was an iPod at that time. Um, And you could also, you know, upload stick all your CDs in and create a library using iTunes. So it was also just an elegant way of organizing music. 18 years later, we don't really organize music as fastidiously as we uh, did 18 years ago. And, you know, now there are algorithms telling us what to listen to next. Right. And and, and this is where, you know, Spotify is one of the streaming services is at the fore, really. Right. Spotify edged in. Um, they're outpacing them in terms of subscribers. And also you have to remember Hulu, Netflix, uh, cable packages offering online streaming services. So there's real demand for Apple to separate out its content services so that you're not, say, watching Game of Thrones on the same platform where you're also downloading Kanye's new album. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So they, I mean, they were the architects of this idea of streaming content digitally on on platforms to your devices. They uh, kind of, as you said, they almost professionalized um, what had been happening in the music industry when you had the likes of Napster, who the music industry, you know, went to court with, mm-hmm. went to war with. Mm-hmm. Um, but you couldn't deny where things were going. Sure. They sort of took music streaming out of the shadows a bit. But Apple's always been a wonderful hardware company. They've struggled to make software um, work as well as, say, Google has with Google Maps, Google has with Gmail. Um, so with podcasts, Apple TV, Apple Music, these three new offerings, they're trying to win back market share to get us to download these apps again and maybe get rid of their competitors. The, I mean, this speaks to me, and um, it, it may not be something new, but it, uh, it seems like everyone talked for years and years about how content was king. But I don't think that's true. I think user experience is king, mm-hmm. as has been shown. Apple had all the content. Sure. But it wasn't quite as easy or as pleasant to use no, it was, as other platforms. It was not packaged nearly as well. And I also think that um, just the pricing aspect of it, um, Apple's about to get into our wallets in a much bigger way on a monthly basis than they ever have. So right now you can pay $9.99 for an Apple Music subscription. It's competitive with a Spotify subscription. They're betting that you will want that user experience on your iPhone, on your iPad, to be with an Apple family product. It's it's and again. I think if we talk about Apple's um, evolution itself, it's no longer re- revolutionizing anything, whether mm. it's devices or software, as it as it has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, my expectation from the developers conference that happened this week, where all these major announcements occurred, was that they actually were going to maybe get more into the smart home space. They didn't really make a splash as much as I was expecting in that. And so, yeah, you're right. I think they're sort of staying with status quo at the moment. And, and that everyone talked about post Steve, jo- you know, the late Steve Jobs, um, that he was the driving force, that, that he had that spark mm-hmm. that helped Apple, you know, recreate things, reinvent things. Um, and now it's a v- still a very strong company, lots and lots of cash, um, very valuable, um, and is, g- is a strong company, but isn't necessarily the spark anymore. Sure, and I guess we'll see when their first shows come out uh, in in the fall. I think. Well, uh, this is the, the producing program. Exactly, their original programming to compete with Netflix and Amazon, uh, and you know maybe they'll reinvent that format in some way, but it remains to be seen. 
It does. It does. And it, it, the whole tech space is is going in an interesting direction. Um, that you, you have, the on the one hand, the issues of privacy, which Apple did address. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the regulatory scrutiny on some of its, its rivals. Uh, we're in a, a new, more mature phase um, yes. for, for technology in general, for Silicon Valley in general. Mm-hmm. And I think innovation competition is much more heightened now that there is actually so much money being invested into technology. Apple used to be sort of singular in the game. They were up against maybe one or two. They're up against IBM. They're up against Microsoft. Now you've got, you know, hundreds of startups vying to offer a unique service from an Apple device. Apple no longer owns the entire ecosystem. And, uh, but that was the point. I mean, mm-hmm. when it when it got the iPhone going and created this idea of apps and right, you know, all of, I mean that they they launched this. They did launch this, and they've launched some of their now biggest competitors in the con- in the content space. So there is some irony here. I, I feel like it's 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 all natural. Yeah, <laughs> this is nature. This, <laughs> this is, is nature. This is what nature taking its course. This is entropy or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so so we'll, we'll let's see how it goes. I mean. If they get it right on the mm-hmm. user experience side, then they have everything else behind them to really push through and make it a success. And and I, I've seen some some articles out there s- sort of spelling out the death of of Netflix, for example, talking about when Disney launches its streaming platform. But now, um, you know, the, you you kind of almost Apple is getting in there too. So it's Apple, Disney, Netflix, Amazon. Um, other platforms, you know, trying to get in there um, to to kind of take that space, and there'll be so much content. Yes, so much. Just just so much. As we head into the hot days of summer, that could be not a bad thing. But I also think uh, this whole death of anyone. You know, consumers are basically used to spending around eighty dollars a month on a cable package. So they're inured to a kind of a higher budget on content. So if that's split up among six products that are each eight bucks a month, then, you know, it becomes, yes, just a whole lot of content. Um, And I think consumers are willing to, to pay. Well, Kelsey, we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. exactly. Yeah. So closer to home, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're, uh, I spoke to uh, Zahabia Gupta, the Associate Director of Sovereign and International Public Finance Ratings at S&P Global Ratings. She came into the studio because they had, S&P had put out a report about um, Abu Dhabi's um, economic outlook. Um, interestingly, they had said that they expect by 2022, the growth rate to hit 3%, mm-hmm. which, which sounds you know, pretty positive, I think. Sure. So they revised their outlook to something slightly more positive. And it's indicating kind of green shoots as to Abu Dhabi's efforts around, you know, the stimulus, long-term residency visas, 100% foreign ownership, sort of this slew of reforms we saw in the last couple of years. Now it's sort of hitting the ground. Uh, We're starting to see some of that take material effect. And Zahabia definitely speaks to that and says that, you know, the, the, now is the period when a lot of this stuff should be coming through, like the guy in 21 Abu Dhabi stimulus. Um, and uh, a couple of other interesting points she makes um, is that, uh, for example, VAT, which is obviously a UAE-wide reform, uh, the proceeds of that are only beginning to be used in budgets mm-hmm. in the, in, across the Emirates now in 2019, which, which surprises me because we we're expecting that to begin to show through last year. So that could also explain why, you know, perhaps it's been a bit of a lag mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of people feeling it on the ground. Sure, an increased government spending. And um, I credit you for kind of giving a face to S&P and giving listeners a chance to kind of understand how this credit agency works. And um, 
it's a, it's an interesting lesson for sure. Well, let's hear from uh, Zahabia Gupta because she does start off by explaining exactly what her job is, yes. <laughs> which I think a lot of people, when they, as you said, would, would be would be interested to know. Let's let's hear the interview. Uh, so Zahabi, as I, I mentioned earlier, you cover sovereign ratings um, for S&P Global Ratings. And maybe before we get into the report of Abu Dhabi, um, it might be nice to take a step back and kind of understand a little bit about what your job is. I mean, when we say ratings, what, what are we talking about exactly? Sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Mustafa. So let me start with what a credit rating is. Broadly, a credit rating refers to the relative credit risk or credit worthiness of an entity. So the entity can be a sovereign, it can be a corporate, an insurance company, a bank, uh, or structured finance transactions. Uh, ratings range from AAA to C, with AAA being the strongest. We also have D after C, which refers to default risk. Uh, actually, it refers to a payment default having taken place. Uh, the rating reflects historical and current information, but it's actually forward-looking. So this ranking and the underlying analysis is, it can be helpful to investors that are looking to make long-term and short-term business decisions and investment decisions. Uh, it can help them where they should invest based on their risk tolerance. It also provides some guidance on what interest rates to charge based on the relative default risk. So just moving specifically to sovereign ratings, since I'm a sovereign analyst. So like, so when we say sovereign, we mean government or country or state, essentially. It's, it, it's not always so clear. Uh, so for example, Abu Dhabi, we rated as a sovereign, uh, even though according to the UN definition, it might not be counted as a country, we still rated under a sovereign criteria. Uh, and what the sovereign criteria looks at, it actually looks at five main factors. First is institutional and governance effectiveness. Second is economic structure and growth prospects. Third is external finances. Fourth is a fiscal flexibility. And fifth is the monetary effectiveness and flexibility. So the way the process works, I mean, just to, to, to mention how this works, it relies a lot on an open and ongoing dialogue with our issuers. And we use that a lot to inform our assessment and our ongoing surveillance. So we have a committee process with analysts from all around the world where we discuss the entity's standing and its future trajectory. And we compare this a lot to peers as well. And the final rating that comes out, it's not an individual's decision, it's a committee process and the decision. So we then publish our reports regularly, which sets out our analysis and the rating. So when we you say words like issuer, talk about strength. So effectively, this is, you know, if you want to lend me money, you do a report on the likelihood of whether I'm going to pay you back essentially. And then you give me a rating, A, B, C, as you said, AAA. Hopefully I'm AAA. But um, so when you, when you look at a, a government or a country or a state, as you said, you're also trying to work out that calculation. Now, Abu Dhabi's raised money from bonds in the past, which we do know. So that's part of this process. So when international investors or local investors say, I want to buy Abu Dhabi government bonds, they look at what S&P says and say, okay, this looks like a pretty good uh, risk for me. I'm not likely to lose my money. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, so very simply, what a rating says, it's about the ability of the government in this case to repay its debt. So it gives you a relative standing on how strong the government's credit worthiness is. And I mean, like you said, it's similar for when a bank wants to lend to an individual, they'll want to know, well, what's what's the credit risk of this individual? And on the basis of that, should I lend? And what interest rate should I charge? So it's it's a similar process for governments as well. Yeah. So if the the more risky they are, um, let's say they've they've had many defaults in the past, then that debt will, will there'll be a higher interest rate on that debt. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and interestingly, in, in your report on Abu Dhabi that came out this week, which is which is why we're talking, um, you, part of that assessment, you're also looking at the outlook for economic growth. I mean, what connect the dots for me? I mean, why would you? What does it matter how fast or slow an economy is growing, essentially, to to determine the strength of their credit worthiness? Sure. It is is important for a few different reasons. I mean, so economic growth potential speaks to the future prosperity of the people. So wealth levels are important. And and those wealth levels that provide cushioning, they provide resilience in in times of economic shocks, in times when you have low oil prices in this region, um, you know, where countries do depend a lot on oil prices. It provides economic, it provides resiliency. Uh, Also, I mean, depending on the wealth levels of the country, it provides, provides a base to the government to then tax those people and to raise government uh, government revenues, to then be able to invest in the economy and to build its infrastructure. So we'll get into your, the, the details of, of uh, the report that S&P put out that you're one of the uh, the authors of, uh, one of the one of the people working on it. Um, and it, w- interestingly, there was the looking ahead to 2022 where the expected economic growth rate for Abu Dhabi would be around 3%. Until then, the average is about 2.5%, picking up essentially from 2019, which a lot of people out there listening to this might be quite pleased to hear about. And, and what's what's your assessment come from there? Our growth, our growth prospects for Abu Dhabi are looking much better over the next three years than they were in the recent past. Uh, a quick word on what's happened in the recent past. So over the last two years, we've seen very low growth. In fact, in 2017, there was a contraction. And a large re- reason for that is, is hydrocarbon production in Abu Dhabi, which does make up a significant portion of the gross domestic product. The, as per the OPEC agreement, there have been production limits being placed on member countries, and Abu Dhabi has been following them. As a result of the lower production, that has then filtered into the economic data and the economy has slowed. Going forward, we do think that hydrocarbon production will pick up. And this is because ADNOC is investing very heavily into upstream as well as downstream production capacity. And and that should help growth. On the non-oil sector, so the non-oil sector depends a lot on oil prices, actually, because higher oil prices mean that the government is going to spend more because it's getting more receipts from oil. And we have seen government spending slow down since 2015. What we're expecting going ahead is that government spending will pick up. And this is part of its stimulus program, the 50 billion dirham stimulus program. So far this year, we've seen the disbursements have been very slow but we expect it to pick up from next year onwards. And the effects of that will then start trickling down into the businesses. The government is also implementing certain measures to improve the investment environment. 
And that includes 100% foreign ownership in certain sectors. It includes providing longer-term visas to certain expatriates and investors as well. The effects of that, I think, we'll see more in the longer term. Um, what, I sh- what I do want to say is that a lot does depend on oil prices, and that has been quite volatile. It's been ranging from $72 per barrel to $62, uh, and, and the outlook does depend on where that will go. The other two key factors, one, I'd say, is geopolitical risk in the region, because if tensions escalate, that could affect investment decisions. The other thing is monetary tightening in the U.S. Uh, we've seen a pause in recent months. If that resumes again, then funding costs will be higher for businesses. So it, it depends on a few factors. But overall, we think that growth will pick up. And I just want to put that into context because uh, in, in your report, it's 3% by 2022. Um, right you know, right now, the U.S. is... Uh, economy is expanding at about 3, 3.1%, which is considered good and robust. Um, India and China, which have been sort of the fastest growing economies in recent years, are at a slower rate. But still, um, I think India, the latest figures were 5.8%. Uh, in China, the target is 65 I think they're slightly under that at the moment, up to 65 at least. Um, and actually, globally, the fastest growing economies in regions such as Africa or Southeast Asia, you're still looking at sort of 7 8%. We're in an era of sort of lower top line numbers. And, and so three might not sound like a lot, but it's still pretty good. Yes, it, it is, of course, relative to the level of development in the country. So, for example, one of the fastest growing countries we have in our ratings horizon is Ethiopia. It's been growing at 8 to 10% for the last decade, and we, con- we expect it to continue growing at, growing at the same rate. Like you said, India, China, they're growing at 6 to 7%. For, for a country like the UAE and for Abu Dhabi, growth rates of 3%, it's, it's robust. It's very robust. I mean, we're talking about GDP per capita levels for Abu Dhabi of more than 80,000, which, which is a very high level of wealth. And so 3% in that context, it's, it's a good level. Uh, we've been used to much higher levels of growth here. Um, and oil prices, and you touched upon this, reached a sort of peak in 2014, over $110 a barrel, and then started going down. Um, and as a result, there was a rationalization of spending government, then corporate in this region. And we're only beginning to really recover from that now the Renan 21 you know stimulus plan in Abu Dhabi for example something that investors were hoping would would come in and as as you said they're beginning to to push that through albeit slowly if steadily um but also we we kind of know that as you said geopolitical risks are one thing to be aware of but also if the oil price suddenly spikes now that could potentially also be something that affects the outlook too. I mean, we don't want oil at $100 again, do we? Well, it it's more complex than just the level of oil prices. You're right. I mean, if oil prices were to reach $100 in the short term, it's actually, it's great for the government because it means that they'll be getting more taxes and royalties from oil. They'll be getting more dividends from ADNOC. And this makes up 90% of their revenues. So if if that increases, you know, it goes from what we have at about $65 right now to 100 That's going to be a massive boost to government revenue, which they can then use to spend more. Overall, I mean, but if, if that oil price is driven by higher geopolitical risk, for example, 
that might not be good for the medium term and longer term economic outlook for this region. Because you might see just lower regional demand, you might see the money go more into defense and less into the productive areas of the economy. You might see less foreign investment coming into the country. And the UAE does depend a lot on foreign investment into real estate, into manufacturing, into other sectors. And we have seen the real estate sector slowing down significantly since 2015. Um, so if you see these these risks continue on the political side, we could see a further slowdown. And non-oil, as you as you correctly point out, is linked to oil. Um, but the idea is at some point, if you keep investing in the non-oil, that they there is a decoupling and that non-oil can have its own kind of um, cycle, if you like. Um, but everything kind of slowed down in this region after the oil price collapse. Um, and going forward now, we're seeing a different kind of, maybe a, a softer stimulus. You have the cash that's coming, but then as you said, like the reform to the visa plans, an encouragement for tech startups to come here, a kind of almost liberalization of, of, the, of the way you set up businesses and you allow people to come in, that might ultimately help change um, the, the way non-oil is linked to oil. It takes a life of its own, I imagine. Yeah, well, the, the whole region is actually looking very much into diversifying their economies away from oil and gas. And the UAE has been a few steps ahead of all the other countries. So the economy is relatively well diversified when you compare to the other GCC countries. And measures like measures that they're now putting into place to, like you said, focus more on innovation, bring in more companies to, to look at certain sectors, provide the incentives to businesses to, to really build on these sectors. It is positive for the non-oil economy and for a more sustainable, longer-term economic vision for the country. One thing I saw in your report that, that struck me as, as surprising is that uh, VAT, which is one of those reforms um, that has been introduced recently, the, the revenue from VAT, it's a 5% um, direct tax at the moment, um, the, that is only showing through for each emirate in the UAE now in 2019. So that means the, the spending boost from those governments having more um, from the VAT hasn't come out yet. No, no. So the VAT receipts and their disbursement was delayed to this year. So the governments did not see the benefits of the VAT receipts last year. And they will see that now coming into their budget uh, from 2019 onwards. So the amounts that we, we have heard about for Abu Dhabi, it's not a big amount because they, as I said, they do rely very heavily on oil and that makes up 90 percent of their revenues. But for the smaller emirates, and we do, we rate Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah. For the smaller emirates where the revenue base is much smaller as a percentage of GDP, it's only about 9 to 10%. For these emirates, the, the VAT receipts will help to broaden the revenue base and to also provide uh, fiscal flexibility to the governments. I mean, even for Abu Dhabi, it will provide fiscal resilience in times of low oil prices. So overall, we do expect the governments to spend on current and capital expenditure, what they're getting from VAT receipts. Yeah, it could be a kind of, um, not self-fulfilling, but the idea being if the economy picks up and so consumer spending picks up, then VAT receipts will pick up too. And it kind of will feed itself Yes, it, 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 at its best. Well, yes, VAT does depend a lot on consumption. 
And that depends on business confidence. It depends on investor confidence. And all of that is linked somehow to oil prices. Uh, but yes, if the economy does well, the VAT receipts will pick up. I think last year we did see a bit of a hit on consumption because people delayed their spending decisions. Everyone was waiting to see what happens with the VAT. Now things have normalized and and inflation levels should be lower as well from this year. And another another aspect of your report that I thought was striking was that the banking sector um, is looking good. Um, I wonder, is this is this as much because of the recent mergers uh, announced and completed in the sector, which is is making you know fewer but more robust institutions, rather than as much being about the sort of broader picture? So the banking sector has been strong because of the high profitability metrics, as well as the sound capitalization and liquid ra- liquidity ratios. And the mergers that you've mentioned, there has been a, this wave in the GCC since 2014. We think the current wave is almost over. So the two big mergers that we saw in Abu Dhabi were the NBAD and FGB, and more recently of ADCB, UNB, and Al-Hilal Bank. So these mergers were among banks with the same shareholders. And this will enhance efficiency. It will strengthen their franchise power and the pricing power. But in general, the UAE has 49 commercial banks. And this is serving a population of around 10 million people. So there has been and there is overcapacity. And there is some opportunity for more mergers. Interestingly, though, we have not seen any cross-emirate mergers uh, among banks so far. So in in a nutshell, yes, the mergers are good and they will help to strengthen the banking system and there's room for more. Uh, Zahabia Gupta from S&P Global Rating, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, that was Zahabia Gupta from S&P Global Ratings speaking to us uh, in the studio in Abu Dhabi. Um, Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us as well. Thank you, Mustafa. All, uh, all that remains is to ask you to uh, give us a review, perhaps, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this program. Um, also, uh, let me thank uh, our new producer, Aisha Khan. And welcome. Yeah, and welcome. Very, very exciting. Indeed, we have a new team and uh, it's a new era, not just for Apple. <laughs> but for us as well. In the Business Extra podcast, sure. Indeed, always. And thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.